Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Tonight we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10. Um, this is a, a couple of short verses uh, of where Jesus is, is talking about what it looks like to receive the kingdom of God. And this is our passage this evening because we're going to be talking about the very first word of our mission statement, uh, to embrace the grace of Jesus Christ. And so uh, let's hear a little bit more of what Jesus has uh, to tell us. If you would, I'd love to invite us to stand uh, for the gospel reading from Mark chapter 10. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated and pray with me. Father, we thank you. Um, thank you for the challenge of your word this evening and, and um, the reminder that unless we learn to receive, um, Father, that we have no place in your kingdom. And so I pray, Father, that you would give us receptive ears to hear your word. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, it was sort of interesting this last week as I was thinking about how to introduce the sermon, I was realizing that I was sitting all the time and my back started to hurt. And I started to recognize that, you know what, there's actually this like new movement um, that, that is recognized that sitting is the new smoking. How many of y'all have heard that phrase? Now, uh, if you actually Google it, you get a lot of like AMA uh, articles are like, no, it's actually not the same as smoking. Smoking is worse. Um, but right, the more that we have worked in this sort of stationary world in front of our computers, um, the more we sit, the health risks um, are, are, are actually pretty bad. And I find it really interesting that what regular sitting does, at least to me, and I know uh, to many others as well, is it actually begins to form my posture. It begins to form my physical body. Right? The more that I sit and work at my computer, right, the more my back begins to round, the more my shoulders begin to hunch over, the more my neck begins to look down. Right? Um, all of a sudden, my, my posture is just more and more round. It's, it's, um, it's fixed. It gets stuck. And we harden in that position. Right, and this doesn't just happen to us physically, but it's actually we get stuck in our habits. We get stuck in our sin. Because right? sin is not just a legal issue, although it is that. It is a legal issue that we have before our Lord where we are violating God's law and He as a just God punishes us for it. However, it is also a perversion where we take God's good gifts and we pervert them to our own uses. And so sin is a posture, in essence. It's a desire to be like God, a belief that we can be independent of Him. And the more that we sit in our posture of sin, the more that we live and move and have our being in and of ourselves, 
well, the more our body's spirit, so to speak, hardens, right? The more we live independently of God, the more our hearts harden toward, towards him and towards others. So the gospel has good news for us decrepit, hard-hearted, and independent folks like you and me. And that is that God is not stuck, right? That he acts. He acts to soften us, and he acts uh, to, to give us a new posture, so we move from this closed off and hardened uh, you know, exterior toward a softened posture of openness and embrace. And actually not just exterior, interior as well. And today I want to talk about the first word uh, of what it looks like to embrace God's grace. Because we believe that it actually sets the whole posture of the church. That our first action is not is not to achieve the mission of, of Advent, but the first action that we have as a church is to receive. It's to soften. It's to embrace. So I want to look at this in three ways. First, the disciples' rejection. Secondly, Jesus' embrace. And then finally, our embrace. Um, so the disciples' rejection, Jesus' embrace, and then finally, our embrace. So throughout the scriptures, the Jewish people would bring, uh, would bring their children to prophets or leaders uh, for a blessing. Joseph did this uh, with his, his brother's children. We see it also with Elisha uh, doing it as well. So um, here we see the fame of Jesus has begun to spread throughout the countryside, and people are bringing their children to be blessed by this new prophet, this new leader. And it says that the disciples rebuked them for bringing their children before him. I like that, Caroline. You're right. They shouldn't do that. Right? They, the disciples here think maybe they're protecting Jesus' time. Or maybe they think that, that he has more important things to do. Um, he needs to be spending time on, on more important people. Or maybe it even seems like they're thinking, what can these children offer the kingdom of God? After all, they're bringing this new kingdom, right, the disciples and Jesus together, at least in their mind, right, they're going to bring and take Israel back from the Romans. But look at verse 14. It says that Jesus is indignant at their overstep, right? Not only have the disciples misunderstood the ministry of Jesus, they've also determined that they are the gatekeepers of that very ministry, I started off with this point that, uh, of, of Jesus's, uh, sorry, of the disciples' rejection because what the disciples do here is so easy for us to do as well. How often do we misunderstand Jesus' ministry? Uh, we use it for our own gain. We figure maybe that he's just going to do something really big or really amazing, and so um, small things or insignificant things feel like a nuisance. Right? Or they, they feel, feel like they have nothing to teach us, so to speak. Um, and I think one of the primary ways that we can easily slip into this mindset is when we believe that ministry, whatever ministry it is that a church has to do or whatever we have to do, has to bear the most fruit or have the biggest impact. You'll see this where churches and church leaders fall into this mindset. They want to put an emphasis on maybe blessing communities that are going to begin to tithe more. Right? So, so we don't want to focus on the marginalized. Or if we do, it's with a sliver of our budget or with a margin of our time. 
Or you might see it where churches and church leaders want to influence the influencer. Right? And they think maybe if I can just get a celebrity or a politician to come to church or to put their faith in Jesus, then the dominoes will begin to fall and other people will want to come and know Jesus as well. And it's easy to see how churches and church leaders get there, right? Because more money could equal more initiatives that could serve more people that include the marginalized. Or maybe uh, more influence can amount to that same sort of thing. So I think how we can change the culture of Houston if we, if we had a celebrity or two. Right? Or if we were out there preaching, if they were out there preaching the good news of Jesus or the good news of Advent. Right? That's what we often want. But at Advent, I want to push against that. I want for us to bless others even if that means that we get nothing in return, even if it only costs us. And I admit that, that right now as a, as a small congregation that's just beginning, that's probably a scary, uh, a scary idea because, you know, what if, what if we don't make it, right? What if we don't grow to, to be as big or, or to be as thriving um, of a congregation? Well, I want us to cast off the, those church growth, that church growth wisdom um, of, of going after what we think is great and building a church of impact. Because it, it ultimately leads, I think, to a place, um, to, to a place of stagnancy. Mike Breen, who's a, a theologian, a, an Anglican theologian, wrote a book called Building a Discipling Culture. And he recognized the problem, that, especially in American Christianity, that we have with this idea, uh, where most of us uh, ha- want to grow a church rather than make disciples. And he says that if you make disciples, you will always get a church. But if you try to build the church, you will rarely get disciples. And at Advent, we want to make disciples, people who follow, love Jesus Christ, We want to invest in college students and graduate students and medical trainees who likely don't have much money or time to give us. We want to bless the medical sojourner with our time, our welcome, our energy, and our prayers, even if they're in Houston for ever so small amount of time, or even if they never come and worship with us in person. Rather than focus on the influencer, we we want to just bless the people around us. We don't want to be uber strategic about like having some sort of top-down ministry structure where if we can get so-and-so, then we'll get so-and-so, and then it'll all work out for us in the end. No, we, we want to just bless those who God has placed in our midst. And because of who we are and where God has placed us, certainly that will include influencers. I'm not saying, like, let's ignore influencers. Right? They need Jesus too. What I am saying, though, is let's not overlook those whom God has placed in our midst those who are marginalized, those who seem like they have nothing to add for the sake of strategy. We want to have open eyes, open, harm, open arms, and open schedules for whoever God places in our midst. And we want to do this because of what we see here with Jesus, that he embraces us. He embraces us as he embraces these little children um, in this way. So let's look at that as our second point, God's embrace of us. Um, 
How many of y'all have ever ridden a horse? Not a, not a rhetorical question. A few? All right, good. Okay, or, or if you haven't, maybe you've walked a dog, um, and maybe you've been, uh, what's that? It's the same as riding a horse, for sure. Um, depending on the size of the dog, it might actually be somewhat similar. My point is this, it actually is similar based on, on this and this alone, right? What happens when they are stubborn? Right, well, they, they pull against you, and we often refer to that as the animal is being stiff-necked. Right? They pull their neck against your leading. Well, the Bible uses that phrase to describe us as well in our relationship with God. It calls us in our posture towards God and His grace being stiff-necked. Right? That language is picking up on the same exact idea of the horse and of the dog. See, it made sense in the end. All right? The more that we live according to our own values, our own methods, or even with just a little, little to no thought of who God is and what He has done for us, that posture begins to get more and more stiff-necked, begins to get more and more deformed, as we were talking about earlier. We get more obstinate. But Jesus is not manipulating right, or, or scheming of how, how best to get His ministry to become a worldwide movement here. No, He's faithfully doing what he's always been doing. That is, he's pursuing people. He's welcoming them. He's laying his hands on them, praying for them, feeding them, giving of his time and energy. And Mark tells us that Jesus takes these children who the disciples were shooing away in his ar- and he takes them in his arms and he blesses them. And I know that this passage is chiefly talking about children here, right? children that he embraces. Right? So we may, it may be easy for us to kind of skip over if we aren't a child or if we don't ourselves have children. But I want to zoom out a little bit and recognize that what's going on here, yes, it is particularly about children, but it is about all of us. Because right? remember, Jesus embraces proud Peter even when he has denied him three times. Peter embraces the woman at the well who's lived a life of adultery up until that point. He embraces Nicodemus who in his own pride you know, is so confused about what Jesus is or what he's doing that he refuses to come to him during daylight time. He comes to him in the evening and he's still very confused but ultimately comes to know Jesus in the end of the gospel stories. Jesus embraces these children as well. These children who can do nothing for Jesus, just like all of those others, just like you and me. He embraces them, and he embraces us. It's Jesus' grace towards stiff-necked sinners and valueless people, right? Valueless, not in the sense of lack of dignity, but valueless in that are bringing little value to the kingdom of God and its growth. It's that grace that begins to soften us. Though we've been burned before or though we're proud, Jesus pursues us and he loves us. Though we've been maybe successful before and we don't think we actually need Jesus, he pursues us and he blesses us. Though we live in anxiety and in fear and we think there's no way God's going to keep his promises, he pursues us and he blesses us. His embrace softens us by his grace, a grace that knows what it's like It knows what it's like to live in a fallen and sinful world, right? A grace that knows what it's like to face temptation. What knows what it's like to suffer and to grieve. He takes us in his arms and he blesses us, right? 
Um, one of my favorite Oscar-winning movies uh, is, is a film by the name of Goodwill Hunting. Depending on our generational distinctions here, uh, we might all know it. Uh, the only reason I even say that is that when I was preaching with RUF at Rice, I was regularly made fun of that I, none of my illustrations stuck. They had not seen anything that I was referencing. So hopefully you all have seen Goodwill Hunting. Um, it's a movie about this hardened Boston brilliant mathematician uh, who ultimately goes onto the Harvard's campus, solves an incredibly challenging math equation, um, and is discovered by a math professor who realizes this guy's going to go on and do great things until he actually meets him, right? Because this hardened exterior, this hardened person has no chance of going on to fulfill whatever math dream one has uh, when you're pursuing math dreams. But uh, unless he actually sees psychiatric help. And so uh, the math professor gets him in touch with one of his best friends who happens to be a psychiatrist by the name of Sean. And Sean grew up in the exact same neighborhood that Will, uh, Will Hunting, uh, did as well. And so um, we see in the movie that, that ultimately these therapy sessions kind of prove fruitless throughout the movie. Right, that, that, that somehow they're not breaking through uh, this, this hardened veneer of Will Hunting. But something happens toward the end of the movie where Sean discovers that Will had actually been beaten. He'd been beaten throughout his life in the foster care system, and Sean decides to do something very risky in the psychiatric field. He decides to tell him about his own history. He decides to tell him about his own experience as a child having been beaten by his regularly drunk father. And it kind of moves into this climactic scene where Sean, Sean steps closer to Will and recognizes that Will is still carrying a lot of guilt and a lot of shame for what has happened. And he says, it's not your fault. He repeats it over and over again until Will finally casts off that exterior and they embrace one another. And while I think the, the it's not your fault is, is a kind of narrative that, that Sean is reminding Will of is incredibly powerful, I think what ultimately breaks Will here, what ultimately uh, softens him, is the fact that Sean knows everything that Will has experienced. That finally he has somebody in his life who's not fleeing, who's actually with him, but not only that, who has experienced everything that he has experienced. And y'all, that is what Jesus does for us. Gordon Neifold, Neifold, a developmental psychologist, says that a heart can only be softened by safe and caring attachments. Right? We're softened by others moving toward us in love and in care. So how much more by Jesus Christ who can identify with everything that we have been through and who moves toward us with his embrace. In our hard disposition, we want to run the other way. Right? In fact, we do often run the other way, yet Jesus runs after us and he pursues us. By his grace, we are softened. And even, even as Christians, we have, the, we have a really hard time recognizing just how good God's grace is. Right? Being embraced by God's grace. We, we often want to think, well, we received God's kingdom because we did something. Maybe God saw ultimately that Taylor Leachman was going to be really valuable for the kingdom of God. 
right? Um, or we think that we have to muster up enough faith or we have to do the right things. Or maybe we even think, okay, yeah, yeah, I get it. It was God's grace that initially called me into his kingdom. But like now, I need to do something to prove that that grace was worth it. Right? Almost saving Private Ryan. Um, prove it. Or, 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 or uh, I actually forget the quote. I shouldn't have brought it up. Earn it. There it is. Earn it. But Jesus, he's clear that we receive the kingdom because the king receives us. And so it's because of his embrace that we embrace him and that we embrace one another. So let's look at the third point, our embrace embrace of God. Um, Though this passage is really short and uh, one of the key elements of this entire passage is that it focuses on children. And this detail isn't meant to conjure up these sort of hallmark feelings of happiness and joy. This isn't a Santa Claus getting a kind of a photo op type of deal with these children. Jesus, in his love for these children and his love for you and me, he sees them and us as citizens in his kingdom. And that is actually anathema to this context. Because a child in the Roman world would have pretty much meant nothing other than a burden. They had no real social standing. They couldn't do any work. They had no value to the family until they could do work, right? And if they were born with a disability, they were often taken out, not even by themselves, who wouldn't, they wouldn't even uh, take it, the, their child themselves. They would have a slave take the child out, outside onto the trash heap to be exposed, to die. And if they were somehow healthy, right, they were just another mouth to feed. In other words, like I said before, they were a burden. And even in a Jewish context where children were treated with far more dignity, with dignity because they were made in the image of God, they still were vastly different from our own current homes. These are not child-centric homes where the families have kind of worked their entire schedule around making sure that the kids get all the perfect activities or have blended organic pureed baby food so that these children have the best and highest IQ from the very earliest of age. No, these... These are children who are a burden to the family. And though it isn't evident in Mark's account, Luke actually makes it clear that these children approaching Jesus are actually far younger than the word children makes it out. These are are infants. These are babies. And as cute as they are, um, there isn't much that a baby is good at. A baby isn't able to serve his or her family or to take a meal to someone or to pray for them. A baby isn't able to evangelize. No, a baby is needy. The only thing a baby is really good at is receiving. When food is offered to a hungry baby or a hungry child, they don't almost, you know, almost refuse out of embarrassment, saying like, no, 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 you shouldn't have, right? Um, They they don't try to earn it. They don't try to pay it forward or, uh, or even to pay for it themselves. They receive it happily with utter dependence on the giver. So when Jesus tells us to receive the kingdom of God like a child, that's what he means. He means that unless we put ourselves in this posture of receptivity, we will not be members of the kingdom of God. It's in our sin and in our hard-hearted posture that we want to try to earn God's grace. It's in our sin and our stiff-neckedness 
um, that, that we believe that these gifts have some sort of strings attached or, or that these gifts need to be earned. Or on the flip side, we believe that we don't need anything from God. Right? That we don't need what He has to offer. But a baby will receive nourishment with no questions asked. They recognize their own need. A baby doesn't need to be reminded of their neediness. They just are. They feel it. They're helpless. They're helpless to get up and to go get themselves some food. They're helpless to change their dirty diaper, to stand up and take care of it themselves. They are truly excellent at embracing what is offered. And we are so bad at that. Right? We would rather keep silent and private rather than tell others in our church when we actually need something or when we, when we need somebody to pray for us. We keep to ourselves when we need a word of encouragement or we, we just fume with anger at why nobody has picked up on the signs uh, that, that I need that type of encouragement as well. Right? Or maybe we refuse a gift. Or if we accept a gift, we think I need to give a gift back as quickly as possible. Or I need to write my thank you note with as beautiful language as possible so that they know I really mean it so that I can kind of earn it with my thankfulness. Right? We try to earn each other's favor. We try to earn each other's grace. We try to earn God's grace. Even this past week, I saw a, a crazy statistic. Um, it was from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University that over one-third of a thousand different pastors in the U.S. Uh, who are polled formally believe that you can earn your way to heaven. And while that number is shocking for a formal theology, right, a theology that is definitely out of step with the Bible, if we're honest with ourselves about our informal theology, the, the, the theology that actually informs our actions day to day, we all believe the same types of things. They just externalized it. We try to do good enough. We try to win enough souls. We, we try to, to raise enough money or give enough money away. But we earn nothing for God and we earn nothing from Him except that He freely gives us His grace. It's not earned. But we can, we can be like little children that's what Jesus is telling us here. We can be utterly reliant upon the grace and gifts of him. And as we do that, it changes the way that we, that we, we interact with God. It changes the way that we react, interact with one another. Charles Spurgeon, who's a famous English pastor, um, actually in preaching on this very passage, said this. He said, let us not say, would to God my child were grown up like myself that he might come to Christ, but rather... May we almost wish that we were little children again and that we could forget much that now we know. That we could be washed clean from habit and prejudice and could begin again with a child's freshness, simplicity, and eagerness. You know, we often think that our maturing in Christ is, is to kind of grow up into these deep theological concepts, but we never get away from this. We never get away from the infantile nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are needy people, and God loves to bestow his grace upon you and me only because he loves it, only because he loves us. In a childlike way, 
May we see the kingdom with simplicity, right? And may we be eager to receive it more. Let me conclude with this. Um, As we talk more about the rest of our mission statement, it does begin to talk more about what it looks like to love others. But let's not forget what it looks like, um, what is, is sort of the foundational element of who we are as a church. We are a needy people, but a needy people who has been given all grace by their Lord and Savior. And as that happens, that changes the way that we embrace one another as well. I, um, may we be reminded that, that you know, this is more of a hospital uh, than it is a country club, um, that we are all in need here and we want to welcome others who are in need here. May this become our posture. Rather than the decrepit, uh, kind of curled up posture, we have a posture of receptivity. Receptivity to God's grace and receptivity uh, uh, to others whom He places in our midst. May that be so. Would you all pray with me to that end? Our Father, we thank You. Lord, we thank You that You give of Yourself, that You give Your grace to sinners like us. And Lord, may it change our hearts. May it change the way that we interact uh, with others. May it change the way that we interact with you. In our neediness, may we be like a child. Like a child that just sort of consistently has gratitude for the things that are offered before. May you change us in that way. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.